the Monroe's Hornpipe. One of the fascinating things about bluegrass music is its origin story. How many genres of music can you name that sprung from the mind of their creators, fully formed and instantly embraced by the public and critics alike? There have been many musical visionaries who have influenced and been imitated by countless others, but how many of them can you say that by themselves brought to life a musical movement? Before the mid-20th century, probably not. Since Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys debuted with their blueprint of 28 songs recorded for Columbia Records in 1946 and 1947, I wonder if genres like reggae and hip-hop might have a parallel in their genesis. Perhaps Bob Marley and DJ Cool Herc could be analogs to Bill Monroe, but that question is too large to tackle here. Almost as intriguing as the beginning of Bluegrass history is how the style both has and has not changed since its inception. While other forms like blues and jazz and country and hip-hop have evolved greatly since they arrived, bluegrass is different. It has changed, that's for sure, but because it was so well-defined to begin with, and since Bill Monroe's success and the resulting shadow he and the Bluegrass Boys cast was so large, deviation was typically heard only around the margins of his design for decades after bluegrass arrived. You could think of the story of bluegrass as being a bit like stories in the Bible, with an Old and a New Testament. Bill Monroe and those first-generation artists like Flatt and Scruggs, the Stanley Brothers, Jimmy Martin, and the Osborne Brothers led their adherents to the Promised Land and set their commandments in stone. While second, third, and fourth-generation players have lived in the land of milk and honey, while both acknowledging the old laws and, over time, adopting new gospels. Unspoken Tradition is a band that knows both books of bluegrass history like the back of their hand, equally comfortable playing originals that Big Mon would approve of and covers that Ralph Stanley surely never would. As they told me in our interview at the Albino Skunk Music Festival, their music is a bridge to the old canon of songs that, moreover, serves as a vehicle to deliver great songwriting and their own interpretation of the form. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is our episode on Unspoken Tradition. Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW, at WNCW.org. This is the second of three episodes to originate from one of my all-time favorite festivals, the Albino Skunk Music Festival in Greer, South Carolina. The podcast on Sierra Farrell preceded this one, and still to come is our episode on Amanda Ann Platt and the Honeycutters, who also played at the Skunk Farm in May 2021. Here, I spoke with brothers Audie and Zane McGinnis 
Ty Gilpin, Tim Gardner, and Sav Sankaran in one of the green rooms at the festival just ahead of their performance where we had a lively and far-ranging conversation about their musical philosophies, how they got their start in bluegrass, and in the case of fiddle player Tim Gardner, old-time music, what silver linings they discovered from not getting to tour due to COVID-19, and much more. You heard a bit of their live performance at Albino Skunk in the show opener, and we'll hear some of their latest songs, which will eventually be part of their next album as well. But first, here is guitar player Audie McGinnis, followed by mandolinist Ty Gilpin, and then Tim Gardner answering my question about where they see the band in relation to those Old and New Testaments of bluegrass music. Oh man, I'll tell you, if we, uh, when we're all around with no pressure, we like to sit around and play all the stuff out of the old playbook and the old songbook. So we, we definitely have our roots in the traditional music, you know. Um, for me, I think it's, I, I don't know, I think, I think there's something to be said about recording your own music and creating your own art in whatever genre, you know, whatever genre you're dealing with. And, and I do realize we're dealing in a, in, in, a, in a little realm here where folks like to hear the familiar stuff, you know, but we try to, I think we like to take our own music and then kind of add the familiar tones and the f- familiar formats and the familiar instrumentation and things like that. So it's got that traditional connection. There's a bridge to that, but we are doing our own thing a lot, you know, whether it comes from us or, or another songwriter and we have the liberty to put our own twist on it. Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think bluegrass music at, at a certain point becomes a, just a medium of delivery for great songwriting and, and, uh, personal stories and originality. Um, keeps it evolving um you know we you, like you say you cut your teeth on the traditional stuff because it's common you know it's something that everybody can uh knows the canon so everybody can you know learn together and then you hopefully just to add to something new to that canon is to add some originality to it so we've tried our best to be original we've written a lot of our own music in the on prior recordings and i think all the singles we've done put out so far have all been from other folks um, spurred on a little bit by our producer John Weisberger, who's also a great songwriter, and um, I think between what he's brought us and some of the other opportunities we've had with other folks, it's just been um, a good song is a good song. You know, we don't necessarily have to write it, but we hopefully can recognize one and one that fits us. So, yeah. To add to that, I would just say, you know, as much as I appreciate the old school, the old you know, the old traditional tunes. I think there's a reason that Bill Monroe and Ralph Stanley didn't write about cell phones and text message breakups. And there's a reason that we don't write about cabins. I mean, it's kind of anachronistic, you know? Those boys were doing what was important to them. They were just making music, you know, that mattered to them, that felt right to them. And I think in a sense, like that's all we're trying to do too. I thought Tim might want to jump in on this one with all of your old time background, you know, like thinking about where the territory of bluegrass, old time, and country music. Like, where are those territory? Where are the where are the um, the state lines, so to speak, for for those forms of music? Well, c- coming from an old time background, it, it is very regional, and people who are pretty well schooled in old time music, you can you can walk around a festival and hear different jam sessions, and which are typically led by fiddle players it's all about the fiddle tunes it's, it's very focused on the dance music 
Um, and you can almost tell what their influences are. It's kind of like dialects of a language. It's, it's like the southern language has different dialects. Like you can tell like there's the coastal dialect, there's the Charleston dialect, there's the mountain dialect, West Virginia dialect, like that kind of thing. And so you can tell that the regional substyles and old time music, and it goes all the way back to the Scotch-Irish influences. So um, with this particular group, I have a really good time just trying to infuse old time sounding stuff with these really great songs that we're doing. California by Unspoken Tradition, a song written by Tom Utes and Miriam Spire, which went to number one on the bluegrass charts in the weeks following this interview. As Audie told me in our conversation, it is a song that is outside the box of a typical Unspoken Tradition number. And they can go farther outside of that box, too. For example, they covered Blues Traveler's The Mountains Win Again on their 2019 album Myths We Tell Our Young. At least with its starting point in a rock outfit from the mid-1990s, it is a song that traditionalists like Ralph Stanley would have frowned upon, but it is another example of how bluegrass has progressed over the decades. Rock and roll covers are not uncommon in bluegrass music nowadays, and songs like The Mountains Win Again are likely to be given the banjo treatment much more going forward. To my thinking, this has to be a positive for the longevity of the genre. One thing that music, like life itself, will always resist is being boxed in and denied growth. For bluegrass to continue flourishing, it simply cannot be contained within its original form. Another thing that is increasingly common in bluegrass is for band members to start out playing music that is anything but. However, in the case of unspoken tradition, everyone played roots music early on. Even though Sav Sankaran plays electric bass occasionally, and has classical training, he has spent most of his life, too, playing bluegrass and old-time music. I asked all of them about those formative years and when they realized that they wanted to be in a bluegrass band. As a core member, I think you ought to take this one, Zane. Uh, probably when I cut my teeth at Merle Fest. Uh, I mean, we spent many a falls laying on blankets uh, while Mom and Dad, and he was probably old enough to remember it and enjoy it, uh, you know, watching... Tony Rice and Bella Fleck and all those guys when it was still a flatbed truck and, and not the Merle, you know, the Doc Watson stage. So uh, he got a guitar when he was 12. Mm -hmm. 
I got a banjo when I was 12, and that's when I knew I was going to be in the bluegrass band. <laughs> so. I thought you were issued a banjo at birth. <laughs> I grew up in Nashville. I played bluegrass out of self-defense just to try to <laughs> have something to do. <laughs> It can be a final answer. It can be a it can be offensive done, done correctly. <laughs> I, think, I think you know. Uh, I think that a lot of us are culturally uh, bluegrass is sort of a cultural phenomenon as much as or, or, for us bluegrass is a cultural. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not so much something that we listen to and learn as much as it is, is part of our, our communities, gotcha. you know. Um, I think even the name Unspoken Tradition sort of leans towards that, the style by which we approach music and the culture from which it comes. I mean, there's all these unspoken traditions that exist in uh, Southern Appalachian traditional music, and um, a lot of those are ones that we subscribed to and grew up listening to and know about even if the name wasn't a conscious um nod to that yeah i think we found more and more that uh yeah it's just it's sort of in the water in the blood like i make a joke about him issue, getting issued a banjo when he was a kid but you know in, in this area of north carolina there's a lot of that i mean it's hard it's hard for anything not to be influenced by the music culture of an area and you know Asheville and shelby and you know the popularity of, of wncw you work you know have that regular dedicated um, hours of music to bluegrass. I think that's a result of this is what is happening in this area and always has. And so it's both something that's rooted and goes way back and it's something that's completely current and still relative now. And uh, um, yeah, we're just glad to be a part of it sustaining and evolving. I like that concept of the unspoken traditions. So I'm imagining something that is so ingrained, that is that is so much... A part of the fabric that it's background, that it's wallpaper, and maybe people that uh, the subscribe to the traditions don't even necessarily uh, think consciously about what they are. So, uh, yeah. any anybody want to riff on that? You nailed it. That's exactly. Yeah. I mean, no, that's, that's exactly it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a slightly different intersection with bluegrass because um so my my parents are immigrants uh you know i'm a first generation appalachian um born and raised in central appalachia grew up in the mountains but you know when you grow up in an immigrant family you're always balancing those traditions whether they be your your own experience versus trying to hold on to your family's heritage from wherever they happen to be from. And so for me, learning about and uh, participating in Appalachian culture was my way of claiming it as my own, you know. Um, it was a part of my, uh, you know, my growth into what is my American story? What, you know, how, how do I lay claim to being an Appalachian American, you know, and, and how do I understand that? And, and, uh, you know, so that was how I came to, you know, to it. And those unspoken traditions go both ways, right? So, um, in part you are internalizing 
the tradition that you're trying to learn and also sort of um, sorting through pieces of that tradition maybe that, that need to change. Um, and that's where the music of, of this band, you know, so I'm the newest member of the band. I've been in the band for about two and a half years. And for me, I was a fan first, and then I came to the band as a member. And so um, for me, the experience that I had of their music was that it had a sense of place, that it was this um, expression of modern mountain culture and how does that retain the traditions that it's built on but also how does it you know um establish a new tradition going forward um my musical journey started at the age of six and my parents they brought me and my brother up to the galax festival um, this is 1986, um, and I remember camped right next to us, there was this really amazing fiddle player um, who played these really awesome melodies, and it was the legendary Kentucky fiddler named J.P. Fraley. And um, so that was like my first real exposure to fiddle music, and then I, I told my parents right then and there that I wanted a fiddle. So for my seventh birthday, they bought me a fiddle, and got me enrolled in lessons with this really um, amazing uh, local fiddler named Chuck Anton, and he was well-versed in all kinds of different styles, not just old time, but uh, learned classical and swing and a little bit of Irish-type um, styles and that sort of thing. And we, we started a family band together. Um, so it was me on fiddle, my mom on guitar, my dad played banjo, and my brother, he was a little guy, so he played the cello like a stand-up bass. And we just, we were living in Florida at the time, and we, we just went around to all these festivals together, and we, we were all learning together and um, playing mostly old-time string band music, and then eventually moved up to North Carolina in 93, and uh, eventually went into high school, didn't really, you know, play much music at that point, you know, but got into college, and that's when I started getting into bluegrass was just as I was getting out of college and moved back home to Asheville area, Brevard, and then started playing in bands. And Ty and I, you know, we've been working together for years and we found each other pretty quickly and yeah. and then eventually got in with this group, which I'm really grateful for. Great. Yeah. I'll give you a short version, less philosophical and reflective. I'll give you the, I don't know. I, you know, for me, it's kind of funny. My dad, I think Zane mentioned earlier that I got my first guitar when I was 12, and my dad traded a van for my first Martin guitar. And uh, it was kind of a funny, funny little story, but there was this guy that did a lot of wheeling and dealing, and he traded not just instruments, he had all kinds of stuff. And we went over there, we knew he had a couple Martins, and there was this D35 that I really liked. and. We got over there and started talking money. We couldn't meet on a price, couldn't meet on a price. And Dad, we had this big old conversion van, one of those old Eagle conversion vans. And I mean, that thing was a tank, but it was on its last legs. And I mean, it was a, it was a rust bucket at that point. We were ready to trade it in and get a new car. And Dad, jokingly, as we're walking off this guy's porch, you know, and he's he's like, we're, we're going home without the guitar, you know. I'm kind of like bummed out, but. 
dad like just kind of jokingly says i'll trade you that guitar for that van and this fellow like scratches his head for a minute he says all right okay and we called mom and said you got to come pick us up we don't have a car and she's like what have y'all what have y'all done you know and so she comes and gets us we're standing at the end of this guy's driveway and i've got the guitar and she's like oh my gosh what's going on but uh but no i mean there's a little local place i started going down in cherryville it's uh, a, an old bomb shelter from from the uh, like you know the Cuban Missile Crisis era, I guess. Um, in in Cherryville, it's Jack Bingham's. He's got an old bomb shelter, and people still go down there on Wednesday nights and pick bluegrass music. And uh, you know, Darren Darren Aldridge is from Cherryville. I grew up around him, took lessons from him for a bit, and kind of got into it that way. But you know, I've got this Martin guitar now, and I'm going down to Jack's, and Darren's introducing me to these pickers in this little group, and so I kind of got plucked into that culture and. And it never really looked back. After college, I got home, and uh, there were a couple of us sitting around, didn't have any jobs yet. Had, we're still figuring out where we were going to land career-wise, you know. And we all had background in music, and some of us had played in little side bands here and there before. None of it was bluegrass. And uh, we got together and started picking just out of, you know, just, just to have something to do. And uh, most of us were like substitute teaching or working short order cook jobs or things like that during the day and then we'd pick at night like five days a week next thing i know we're pretty tight and then the banjo comes in and suddenly we're a bluegrass band you know and one of the guys says i mean it's, it was really this simple i'd never really thought about like playing in front of people and um the one of the guys said do you guys like to make money? And I was like, I hate making money. That sounds terrible. I, and you know, the funny thing is, I don't know why he said that because we still ain't making no money. But, but I mean, you know, we got our first little gig at Hams in Shelby. I don't even think it's there anymore. Nope. We played at Hams, and like the people, even the people in Hams, like that's not a bluegrass hot spot by any means. But those people were like, yeah, you guys are great. Irons in the Fire, Unspoken Tradition's latest single, a song that reflects the frustrations and isolation and anxiety from the lockdown of 2020 and many more months of waiting and reflecting on things left undone. It was written by Aaron Bibelhauser and Steve Gunthner, but it clearly captures the state of mind of the band from that time, especially Audie McGinnis. The first week of March or so of last year, I was like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to woodshed my instrument and I'm going to write all these songs and I'm like, we're going to have this magnum opus when we're done with this year, you know, whatever. 
And then I suddenly realized that it's really hard to find inspiration in isolation. And all the people and all the places and all the objects and all the all that stuff that, that I draw that energy from, like I couldn't go near it, couldn't go near them, you know? And I mean, like this conversation right here is realer than anything that I experienced in 2020, like, in all, you know, in, in some ways, just because we're all standing here together. Um, it was, I'm telling you, like, and these guys know 2020 was tough for me. Like, and it, I'm a, I'm a people person. I'm a hugger. I'm, I'm, you know, like, and I, there have been, there were a couple times where I, I kind of borderline lashed out because of the frustration. And, and it was also because like my expectations for where I thought 2020 was going to go in terms of being able to just sit down and finally have time to write and, and then like the well dried up, you know, I, I spoke about that earlier. My well stayed dry for a little while and it took me kind of really, really having to like look inside myself and bring my experience as a songwriter to another place to like unlock that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm writing in the pandemic was hard for me. We got it done, but it was, it was tough. It was tough. It was just a different, different experience altogether. So I would say I came out of it like, with an appreciation of what we did prior and also an appreciation of how it, in order to continue to be an artist that creates, I had to adapt. You know, I had to figure out how to work through it, work around it. That was, that was a big part of it for me. Anybody? Yeah. I think uh, one, you asked about silver linings. I think one silver lining, certainly one positive that came out of it, 2019, we hit the road pretty hard. We were we were playing a lot in 2019, which was great, and we got really tight and and you know everything was you know we were firing on all cylinders, but there is a fatigue that goes along with that as well, and so I think one of the things that you will see in some of our new music that's coming out now and will go on this forthcoming project is the result of that pause giving us time to reflect on you know what kind of music do we really want to make going forward and there was time for us to really be thoughtful and intentional about the music that we were going to record during the pandemic and we were very very thankful that we were able to do that and do it in a safe manner and all of that but I do think that was definitely a, a positive that we did have the time. We didn't feel that pressure to go out and play because we couldn't anyway. Um, and so anytime we were able to get together virtually or in person to talk about music or to think about what kind of music we wanted to make, it was done in a really thoughtful and, and you know, intentional way. And we had the space to do that. And that was definitely a big positive for me personally. Yeah, one, I was going to mention just for the plug here, one thing we you know, were able to do and just got finished doing and would probably be uh, released sometime before the end of this year is we got to record with one of our heroes, John Doyle, the great Don, John Doyle of um, um, uh, just... Is famous. So Lawson is famous as a yeah. solo artist and just yeah. an incredible uh, artist and musician. And he was gracious enough to play a version of Crooked Jack, uh, which we bluegrassed and he Irished. And between the two, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we kind of met in the middle there. And between uh, the, the two influences, I think we've got a really uh, dynamite recording and a collaborative recording that. Uh, is going to be out sometime before the end of the year. So little things like that, you know, sort of a wish list of, oh man, it'd be great to do this one day. And we're able to sort of work out 
opportunity because we and he weren't running up and down the road trying to make a living and somehow conned him into doing it and hanging out with us lowbrows but uh, it's, it's really cool and, and, and you know opportunities like that you know you yeah. know, sort of golden things you never would have thought would have happened but that's a great a great example i think is being able to uh, and we we're honored to record with john We will have to wait for Crooked Jack, as Ty Gilpin just told us. So at the bottom of the show, here is At the Bottom Again, another recent release from Unspoken Tradition to wrap up their time here on Southern Songs and Stories. I always enjoy talking with guests on this podcast, but I have to say that my interview with these gentlemen was especially rewarding. They are some of the most genuine, forthright, and dedicated artists you will ever meet. And it shows whenever they are in a studio, on stage, or simply talking with anyone who wants to take a few minutes of their time. They put all of themselves into what they do. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I also hope you might tell someone you know about it, in person, on social media, however you like. You can follow the series on podcast platforms everywhere. And once you do that, could you take a minute and give us a top rating and a review? In just moments, you will help make all of the topics and artists covered on this series more likely to be found by more people just like you. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. With all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists that make it. It's clear to me now